0: 50 for details.
1: The other side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Hello, thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk here with Lucas Sullivan. And today we will be talking to Ben and who is a humanist chaplain and serves as a treasurer on the Board of Trustees for the Humanist Community of Central Ohio. And also joining us is Nathan B. Weller, who serves on the organization's Board of Trustees as well. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. I have so many questions about this, but the first thing I want to start with, I think, is so if you look up the definition of humanism, Merriam-Webster's definition, it's defined as a doctrine or attitude or way of life centered around human interests or values, especially a philosophy that rejects supernaturalism and stresses the individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. Now, the reason why I read all that is because most people have heard of the term atheism, Mm -hmm. which is if you're wondering, defined as a lack of belief or strong disbelief in the existence of God or any gods. But I know you guys consider yourself humanists and your organization basically centers around humanism. And so can you explain to me what is the difference, in your opinion, what is the difference between atheism and humanism?
2: So the the main distinction for me is uh, what do I want to define myself by? So is atheism inherent to humanism? Yes, there's that part in the the definition you read that talked about without supernaturalism. So that's sort of the atheist side. But humanism is more of a stance of what I'm for. Okay. You know, I can say I am not a theist, but that again gives theism power, that it gives me defined by what I'm not, and I'd rather stand for what I'm for. And okay. that's for the human relationships and humanity, sort of a trust that we may hopefully eventually get it right if we work hard. enough.
3: There's also an interesting aspect to it, in my opinion, of, you know, personal growth and development. You know, having having a framework by which to view the world. I think a lot of folks in the United States, and, and I can speak from my experience, they have sort of the cultural normal background, which is a religious background, a Christian background for many, many people. And you're seeing this rise of a group called the nuns, people who don't believe in anything. It's really hard to reorient yourself around believing in nothing. Mm-hmm. So my journey from deconverting from Christianity and trying to find purpose and direction and meaning in life, I needed something besides just not believing. And for me, that was creating a framework and a philosophy or rather discovering that, you know, many, many people had come before, you know, starting from the very beginning of philosophy, like 2000 years ago, there's still this incredibly rich history of thought and values and morals and meaning. And, you know, I think a lot of people miss that, that sense of belonging to a a rich tradition when they leave a faith. Mm -hmm. But with what humanism does is it kind of celebrates that whole history of, of thought and philosophy and, um, striving for the best life and becoming a part of that journey and that conversation and that community throughout time. It's really much more fulfilling, in my opinion, than simply stating, well, I don't believe in that anymore.
0: One of the things I found interesting, fascinating about you two is that you both have a deep background in religion Mm -hmm. and studied multiple aspects of it, multiple faiths in some cases, right? Yep. So this isn't coming from a place of, you know, you just don't want to believe and you want to be different. You guys actually, you know, immersed yourself in it and then realized it wasn't (laughs) what you wanted or what. You wanted to believe in, so I'm just wondering in the humanism. I don't know if culture is the right word, but in the humanism, faith or what, however you say it, is that are a lot of people in that boat where they immerse themselves and you know gave it a really good try, but it just wasn't for them, and then we're still looking for something else to kind of fill that space.
2: Yeah, I think so. Most humanists that I know have had some sort of background in a religious tradition before coming into humanism, whether it's Christianity, Judaism. Or something else. There's many Muslims who have come to humanism. And so there is often a search for meaning, a search for truth, you know. And I don't know if I would say that I just decided that this is what I wanted to be for. Part of it is also it made sense, you know. So I was raised in an evangelical Christianity. I studied all of that stuff. I uh, majored in Jewish studies at Ohio State. I did years of Hebrew as graduate school stuff. I went to the University of Oxford. And all of that was a part of a study for how can I, what is the truth? And I'll say it with a big T. And being guided by reason and my experience, it just led directly to the idea that yes, we are here on our own, but that's okay because we're also here with each other. And that's what I think humanism kind of guides us to. So you're talking like kind of holes in the story for you or
0: holes in the the belief structure. So am I understanding you right that you went kind of, you started in an evangelical faith and then immersed yourself in Judaism and because you were still Mm -hmm. trying to find Mm -hmm. the pieces didn't quite fit together for you. Is that a good way to say it?
2: Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. So, you know, my family, I'm the first person to not go to Bob Jones University, a very conservative school in Greenville, South Carolina. You know, their claim to fame is they just allowed interracial marriage like in the 2000s. So (laughs) they're pretty progressive group of people. And that's the world I grew up in. Uh, Clearly that was lacking and so, yeah, there was an exploration for truth beyond that uh, that was immersed in Judaism, trying to find truth. And, you know, there's the, actually there's this if you look to the humanist manifesto, the third one's kind of uh, if we, do, we don't have scripture, but that's pretty close to what we have. And there's like this three part thing that humanism stands for. it's that we're guided by reason. We're inspired by compassion, but we're informed by our experience. So, you know, it made reasonable sense that we have no God, that we are here on our own. But that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the suffering that's going on, that I don't care about each other. And all of that is informed by my experience. So I did not experience God existing. What I did experience was suffering. I did experience relationships with people that were important and meaningful to
1: me and that's kind of what guided me. Do you me. think that your evangelical background, did it actually push you away from mine did?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, go for it. Now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, so I left high school and I, I was evangelical background, you know, bordering on like the pretty fundamentalist evangelical background and I was determined to go into full-time ministry and and it's funny that over the years i've realized that the people who take the time to get serious about reading and understanding the bible a lot of them end up like just walking away from the faith because they're like this doesn't make any sense and it's not that like the values that people talk about in, in association with christianity don't make sense it's that when you try to directly derive those values from the scripture itself there's a huge disconnect because it's like you're trying to filter it through all these different languages and interpretations and movements and stuff like that and so like the current you know you know, popular culture understanding. Like if you were just to grow up in the culture and my wife's an amazing example of this, cause she was not a Christian. She's always been an atheist. Mm-hmm. And when I tell her about the actual stuff that's in the Bible versus what she thinks is in the Bible based on just growing up in America, it is so different and it's really funny. And so if you actually dive deep, I found into the scripture itself and you try to go, okay, how can I possibly honor the commands and the teachings in this and live in 2019? It is quite difficult. You either become a radical or you decide that, you know,
1: that's not for you in in a lot of cases. But you guys didn't just decide that Christianity didn't work for you. I mean, because you could have, you know, switched to another religion. Mm -hmm. Why? So obviously you made a decision that you didn't think any religion would actually fit your beliefs, right? Yeah, absolutely.
3: well, there's a, a lot of people in the atheist community always talk about how when they're talking to someone who is a firm believer in another faith, their response is, well, you're I'm only one more God. There's only one more God that I don't believe in than you. You know, like if I'm an atheist for not believing in, in any of the gods that we know of, you know, you also don't believe in any other God but yours. So really, it's just a matter of, you know, one God out of the pantheon that I've ticked off that you haven't ticked off yet, you know, <laughs> gotcha. in terms of the list of ones that we don't believe in. And so for me, you know, I'd grown up my whole life not believing. And all those other gods and and their traditions didn't make a lot much more sense. It's not to say that I didn't investigate them but after you go through the work and it was work you know there's exhaustive amounts of study and debate and talking with peers and and mentors once you go through the work of stepping away from a tradition that you had deep faith in it kind of prepares you to look with a more critical eye at the other faith traditions out there and as you do that i think the holes become pretty apparent pretty quickly
1: yeah just out of curiosity what do you guys think happens when we die
3: nothing i mean i think the special thing about our existence is just that our existence you know i don't feel that not having an afterlife makes you know It makes the time that I have here so much more special. You know, the fact that when I die, I don't think I'm going to see my wife again after that. It means that every day I wake up and I go, man, I'm so lucky. This is so special that in all of the cosmos, there's in all of the observable universe. We've never discovered conscious life or really life of any other kind, but especially conscious life anywhere besides this planet. So it's something that to the best of our knowledge is extremely rare and special. And then within that, I'm just this tiny blip on that. And then within that, I got to have these special relationships. That it just, it, To me, it elevates the human experience and it doesn't put emphasis on something to come because I feel like if your emphasis is always on something to come, and a lot of times you're not living your life the way you want to, you're living your life in a way that you feel like you have to in order to earn something later. But what if there is no later? I mean, you're really missing being in the moment and, and appreciating what you have. And once it's gone, maybe, you know, there's no getting that back.
0: Yeah. Ben, I'm really uh, interested in aspect of what you talked about, that your family is immersed deeply. Mm-hmm. Is it in the evangelical? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So not only did you have to kind of... I guess, turn away from Christianity and Judaism. You also, it probably felt like doing that a little bit with your own family. And I wonder if I know that for people out there who are struggling, maybe struggling with this on how to do this,
2: can you talk a little bit about how you did that, how you got through that? Yeah, I have a a little bit of a different, unique story in that, but which we don't need to go into right now. But yeah, so the experience on the one hand is very isolating, I'm not going to lie. You know, as I started asking questions of things that you're not supposed to ask questions of, you know, uh, those questions get shut down. So you're not even getting any sort of answers, whether it's genuine or not, you know, you're just told that question of itself is a dangerous question. And so you then start learning, okay, I can't ask this question of my family. I can't ask this question of my pastor. So, because you're questioning God? Because you're questioning God, you're questioning so what what if this is the only life I have and my religion is teaching me to be kind of a jerk to people because I want them to go to heaven too right even though it's well intentioned I'm still kind of being a jerk to people and if I, end, if I come to the end of my life and there is nothing left and I look back and I go well I did my best but you know I isolated a bunch of people out of anger or out of being mean to them whether you know well intentioned or not that's how it feels oftentimes right mm-hmm. and so I did not want to live that life so I was asking okay so what happens if we die and I've done all this and I'm stuck with a life I don't want to live anymore a life that I'm not happy with that's a dangerous question to ask, especially in an evangelical world where the whole push is evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Right. So, you know, and then, yeah, so what if there isn't a God? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our life? There's contradictions in the Bible. You start asking, okay, you know, did Jesus die and three days later resurrected? Well, the math is kind of sketchy on that. If you look at the actual days in the gospel, you know, did God create the world in seven days? Well, evolution tells us no, and even if you look at that as a mythology, then the, the next chapter chapter two tells of a totally different creative creation narrative you know so when you start pointing out these differences and again the world that i grew up in was a literalist fundamentalist evangelical world those questions are dangerous and so it is isolating but what I also found on the other side of that isolation is that I wasn't alone, right? And that to me is the hopeful side of it. You know, not only was I not alone because I have people like Nathan, I have a humanist community of other people who have gone through very similar situations. Some people who I would say have been fortunate enough to have been raised without this concept of God or religion. But, you know, I went to a Progressive Seminary. I met Christians who kind of agree with me. That's kind Weird and cool. Why do you say fortunate? You said that they were fortunate not to be raised. Yeah. So, I mean, in my experience, ninety percent of theology comes with baggage that we don't need. And I'm talking of that not only from my own experience, but my personal experience, but my experience as a chaplain. You know, with patients at the bedside who are dealing with what I would think of as unnecessary guilt, who are dealing with regrets. At the end of their life, my job isn't there to challenge them and go, well, why the hell did you believe in God for all these years, you know, but to figure out, okay, where are these parts of your tradition that are beneficial to you? And we'll start focusing on that instead. But there's so many people who come into a sickness, come into the end of a life, who come into the sudden or expected death of a loved one. And in my opinion, they're carrying a lot of emotional and spiritual baggage that they don't necessarily
1: need. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask you guys, I mean, often with People who are religious or spiritual, you know, in times of adversity or, you know, tragedy or whatever, they turn to prayer, you know, they may turn to, you know, whatever their holy book is for comfort or inspiration. I was gonna ask you guys, what do you do personally, since obviously you wouldn't take that route? And as a chaplain, Mm -hmm. if you're in the moment with someone who's maybe at the end of their life, Obviously, you wouldn't say all the normal things that you. Oh, I shouldn't say normal. The things that you would you would say to a, a Christian, mm-hmm. perhaps. How do you counsel them? How do you advise them? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of
2: the art of chaplaincy. Is that chaplaincy is inherently multi faith, multi valued. So even Christians will be sitting at the bedside of a Muslim patient as they're dying or of an atheist as they're dying. And the art of chaplaincy is not that you bring your point of view into the patient, but... You use the patient's point of view to give them support. So, you know, while prayer is not a part of how I find meaning in the world or how I connect to other people mm-hmm. for patients, it may very well be. Mindfulness might be how they, you know, find peace in the midst of suffering. The goal for me is how do I work with the patient to feel strengthened themselves in the midst of that time. Now, I come at that from a humanist framework. You know, I come from that from the understanding that actually there is no inherent meaning to life. So that's actually a good thing, because that means that we are free to instill whatever meaning we want into our lives. And so a Christian may well find meaning in life from prayer and their connection to God and the Christian community that they've come to love and respect. That's great. That's how they're finding meaning. It's not my job to destroy it. It's my job to strengthen it and help them find their own comfort. I also teach chaplains, and when they ask me about how I do what I do, I often say, well, I don't believe in God, but I believe in you. I believe that you have the capacity to find meaning in what's going on, and my job is to help you figure that
3: out. Another perspective on that, I mean, not in opposition to that, but just to compliment that is, you know, when you think about, you know, I grew up in church, and, you know, we were at church all the time. My family went multiple times a week. All of our family friends were Christians, so it was a very close-knit community growing up, and when someone in the community died It was not by and large a religious playbook it was a human playbook with religious trappings in my in my experience you know you bring the casserole over everybody comes together you hug you just sit there and you spend time with them you listen to them you let them get out their pain you let them work through their suffering and then you let them know that you're there beside them those things are not you know religion doesn't have a monopoly on compassion doesn't have a monopoly on you know loving somebody and when someone who's close to me is suffering you know i don't tell them i'm praying for you um in my experience that has never brought me comfort to have someone say like it's been like oh well thanks you know like i'm glad but you know what i could really use is like dinner you know or (laughs) or a hug or a hug yeah Yeah, exactly and so I i don't think that outside of maybe like a you know your own internal emotional process that faith is inherently better equipped You know, if you've aligned yourself with a spiritual tradition your whole life, then that, yeah, that can be a place of strength. But if that's not for you, if you've deconverted, if you've never believed, I think what you really need is a friend and a community.
0: I've seen in in other places you've talked about deconverting and you you use some not so pleasant adjectives to describe that process you said it, it was painful I think maybe you've said before but in other places but what is how do you deconvert like what is there a ceremony is there a <laughs> is there a do you just stand up and say and tell people like how did you deconvert
3: so like uh, I think it's a very unofficial term I mean it's just something that's kind of popped up in the in the non-believer community over the years and I think it's because it, it really makes sense when you think about converting a lot of times especially in like the biblical sense you think of like the apostles. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus like he's he's hit with a bright light he's blinded and to not believe anymore after something so profound it's like how dumb can you be like of course you're going to believe God literally just came down and knocked you on the head or whatever with, the, with with light so that's like your conversion experience your conversion experience should be I think if, if you're being sincere about it undeniable right mm-hmm. and your deconversion experience should equally be undeniable I mean like if you're having these doubts and you're investigating them and every time you come to this point of, well, if I'm holding this thing that's supposed to be the ultimate pinnacle of truth to the highest standards of investigation that I can, so if I'm saying, if God is God, he's all powerful, and his truth is here, it should be able to withstand any test I can I can bring to it with flying colors, right? But if if I'm finding over and over and over again that it's not withholding that test, it's not standing up to that test, then eventually I have to be honest with myself, you know, and just say, it's undeniable. I now cannot convince myself anymore that I believe. And that can take a long, long time. For me, it took years, starting while I was actually still working in full-time ministry. So the painful part is that it took you a long time to just finally come to grips with it? There's a lot of painful parts about it. Let's not forget, you know, this this is your your identity. Mm-hmm. It's, it is your source of strength and comfort in your mind and, and in your emotions. You know, depending on how deeply involved you are, you know, if it's your career, for instance, I was actually going, I was on the track to become a pastor. I was studying. I was in full-time ministry already. I was Basically shredding my future I had people I thought were going to be Close friends for the rest of my life And when their life is centered on their belief And I'm all of a sudden saying I don't share that with you anymore That's your deepest point of connection With all of these people Including Mm. your family And so it's It really I, I had this term that I used throughout my entire deconversion. So I felt like I was dislodged. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I had been attached to this thing moving through time, my life. And if you think of something in space, it just like might break off of a space shuttle, right? And just float there. It's like mm-hmm. dislodged, but it doesn't have an anchor on anything else. And you just feel kind of lost and you feel like you can't get purchased on anything. That's how I felt for years. And I'm not going to say humanism, you know, came into my life and changed everything. Mm-hmm. But I I started looking. I started looking for community and I, I found HCCO the humanist community of central Ohio. And I was still in the process of that deconversion kind of at the the end of it there for, in terms of coming to terms with my own non-belief. And it was the relationships that I built over the next couple of years in that community that really grounded me again.
1: I'm just curious, how often does this come up in conversation or I mean, does it come up in conversation very often? I know like, obviously if you're an evangelical Christian for them, their faith comes up usually very often. How often do you guys actually do you actually enter? I'm not, I, I've Obviously, you would introduce yourself and say hi I'm you know I'm, I'm a humanist but I mean I'm in that unique situation of when somebody goes okay
2: hi I'm so-and-so who are you what do you do well I'm Ben and I'm a humanist chaplain so it's like so yeah I talk about humanism all the time and right uh, it's usually how
1: what's the reaction
2: usually people look at me weird which is expected and then there's either they don't know exactly what humanism is so they kind of ask me about that or they've never, you know, there's, hopefully there's a respectful curiosity of, okay, what does this mean? Tell me about this. And we start asking these questions. Well, then how, do you do? You believe in an afterlife? How, you don't You don't really mean you don't believe in God. Like, you, you believe in something, right? And no, I don't. You know, so those are the kind of things that you have and you clarify. Are most Christians respectful when they mm, talk to you about it? It depends. Yeah, I'd say 50-50. There's,
3: there's a lot of mis- understanding, too, I should say. In the Christian community, there there may be some misunderstandings about what humanism is. I've had Christians talk to me who think humanism is hedonism. So they're like, what, you go to orgies all the time? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's a that's a totally different uh, <laughs> yeah. philosophy. But that's not, you know, wrong in our tradition if you're into that. <laughs> because we're not judging people or trying to control their sexuality in any way. But, no, that is not what
1: I'm all about. I actually have some, it's funny you guys were talking about public opinion. There's a recent poll t- And according to this poll, more than half of Americans believe atheists should not be allowed to put up displays that celebrate their beliefs. A third of the respondents believe that atheists should be banned from becoming president and they should also be denied the opportunity to teach in public schools. So obviously there's a for a lot of Americans, there's a negative. They have a negative impression of humanism, which brings me to my next point, because there are some organizations that refer to themselves as atheists and they say. that using the term humanism is a more politically correct, watered down way of saying that I'm an atheist, but it because it doesn't have that connotation with it, that you guys are basically just saying humanism, so people are more willing to accept it. How would you respond to that? I point to my
2: early answer of, well, I'd rather define myself by what I'm for than what I'm against. I don't hide my non-theism. Theoretically, for me, there is a power dynamic involved as well that I think many atheists don't recognize, that just identifies atheists. That by defining myself by what I am against. I'm mm-hmm. giving power to that thing that I am against. You know, they now, when are, you
1: say against, you uh-huh. mean, because my understanding is atheists basically are saying they do not believe in any God. Right. right? So th- is that the same as saying yeah, I'm against, against God? Yeah.
2: So I am atheist. I do not believe in any theism whatsoever. No okay. supernaturalism.
1: Which nothing. is the same as what you believe, though. Right.
2: Yeah. Okay. But I Again, it's the definition of positive versus the negative. And then so if I say, so if I am homosexual, mm-hmm. I'm gay, and I say I am not straight, and that's how I define myself, Right. then I'm actually giving power to the straight community by defining myself against them instead of saying, here's what I am, oh, I gotcha. am gay. So similarly, in my mind. By defining myself by what I am I am a humanist I am depowering the cultural theism That is invasive within the Western world Gotcha you.
1: Would you agree?
3: Yeah, absolutely yeah, I was actually going to sort of pivot into that last bit mm. <laughs> I wanted to
1: ask you guys about the human humanism The human aspect of your beliefs You know, people can be terrible We, we do some very terrible, nasty things to each other There's obviously some very wonderful, compassionate things that people People can express so I guess when you when you say you're sort of focused on on the human aspect of it a lot of people I believe that whatever you think about Christianity or other organized religions or other predominant religions maybe I should put it that way I think that to some degree it keeps people from doing a lot of terrible things now religion has certainly inspired people to do terrible things but I think there are a lot of people who that is the only compass if you will for their conscience and whether they they are charitable and 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 all these other things. So I guess my question is, if you focus on people... Is that, that? I don't know. I, that kind of worries me. <laughs> <laughs> it worries me too.
3: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about humanism, it's updatable, right? It's not divine revelation, and so we can take the best ideas of what humanity can be, mm-hmm. and we can continue to contribute to it, and we can recognize it across cultures and pull together the best. If you're working from a faith, a lot of times you're stuck not only in one specific, you know, cultural vein, but you're also stuck in time when that divine revelation happens. So, like, I would actually argue that. the vast majority of Christianity or Catholicism as it operates in the world today is a humanized version of their faith because if they lived out by the word of their holy text which was thousands of years ago they'd still be going out you know like finding people and and stoning them and doing all these Mm. these crazy things you know women wouldn't have any rights you know in the church and so I think what you're actually seeing is not the restraining power of the faith you're seeing the humanist influence on faith and which is primarily primarily progressive philosophy on you know how to be a better human being to each other and there's all kinds of ways that we can do that and we can continue to make it better and better as time goes by there's no reason for us to hold on to an idea that doesn't work mm-hmm. in the society that we live in anymore and that's one of the things i find most encouraging about it and it's- actually what i think gives it the biggest leg up in terms of a true applied philosophy
2: and i would just add to that there is a misconception that humanism will argue that humanity is inherently inherently good right Mm -hmm. leave us alone we'll progress and it's religion that screwed us up i don't necessarily disagree with the second part but humanism does not necessarily hold that humanity is inherently good it's humanity is an evolved creature We are neither good nor bad. We have the ability to do good things. We are responsible to do good things and to care for each other. But, you know, unlike the God that has been taught to me several times, you know, God is love. God is good. God is, you know, uh, absolute this No, we can, humans could screw it up. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, I had, I was at a a chaplain's conference and one of the pastors there made a point that I think is really fantastic. He said, well, with respect, he's a liberation theology guy. He said, with respect, I'm going to disagree with Martin Luther King Jr. The arch of the history is not long and bent towards justice. We have to pull it there. And that's kind of a good summary of how I look at it.
0: The big underlying thing, especially when I hear you guys talk, is there's a lot of emotion here Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of like your own personal beliefs and we see that manifest itself in good ways on both sides of the aisle here but we also see it a lot of times in christianity and you know bigotry and things on the other side but i'm interested to know or was there a moment was there a thing or was it a culmination of things that you guys were just like okay i i just can't this can't be part of my constitution anymore and that, you know, when you think about changing the change that you made, do those things pop back up in your head as one of the moments where it turned for you?
3: Mine's kind of weird and super, super specific. I don't know if you want to get into it.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if you can get into it quickly, but I'm yeah. just wondering, like, you know, it sounds like for you and if I'm wrong, uh, Nathan, you can correct me. But it sounds like there was a gradual thing, maybe. And maybe yeah. for Ben, I don't know. It seems like maybe there were one or two like big things where you were like, OK, I this can't.
3: There was certainly an aha moment for me that kick-started my serious investigation into my own faith. I was working at a ministry. We had we were I was a producer on a on a arena or stadium event, and we were touring the country. And we had this thing where we were baptizing people. We had these tubs, and we'd have like an altar call, and people would get baptized. And behind the scenes, you know, we had made this decision after like months of planning and prayer and supposed like guidance from God. God and Bible study and all this stuff so it was a very coming up with this concept right was very very this kind of mass baptism yeah is what you, the, okay. the concept itself was very in that context fascinating spirit led you know that's a mm-hmm. common term and so I felt like okay we got to do this right you know if, if we all feel compelled we've all prayed together we've all thought this is what we have to do and we all feel like you know everything that we've been studying leads to this well behind the scenes the the head of the organization got a call from a network of pastors who were like we don't like that you're baptizing our people when they come to your events knock it off and so he did he was like because they were donors and he was like I don't want to lose these donors we're not going to do this and I thought oh wow hold on a second hold on a second do we really believe what we're saying here or are we really when I think of the Bible and I think of Jesus I'm like when he saw people using a holy place for financial gain, he tipped their tables over Yeah. and we were doing this thing. And for financial gain, we decided to not use that space that we had made holy for a holy purpose anymore. We decided to use it for a money-making device. And that was when I went, whoa, hold on a second. Maybe at the very least, the tradition that I'm in or the position that I'm in is not in line with God. And so then I started going, I need to be ultra skeptical going forward on how I'm participating in my faith and who I'm affiliating myself with. And that was the catalyst. But
1: up to that point, were you doing what you were doing because you you just believed that's what you should do? That was the right thing to do? Or were you doing it because I wonder sometimes with, with people who are, are very religious and you know evangelicals especially, is it more that you were raised to believe that this is what you're supposed to do? This is how you serve God? Or were you doing it because it made you feel good personally? Up All to of that the point. Above. okay. All
3: of the above. I mean, I was 100%. And I'm one of the only people I know who can Honestly, say at I think two or three different times in my life, I gave everything I owned to God. Literally, emptied my bank accounts, went and lived somewhere else, did missionary work, all this stuff, and it wasn't because someone told me to do it. It was because I had what I would consider sincere religious, you know, belief, sincere spiritual moments, and they were very convincing to me. But then, the more I learned, part of the my deconversion process and what made it so long and tangled was I quickly wrapped my head around the inconsistencies and the logical side of things, but the emotional side. Of things and the baggage which you came away, knew, but that you was knew terrible those inconsistencies.
1: did you just choose to ignore them prior to that point I think they had been
3: strategically well I shouldn't say strategically I'd say I think they had been glossed over or explained away because one thing you got to realize about the faith tradition is there's thousands of years of content that is complementing the Bible right so it's like if you have a doubt about something well thank goodness this monk 500 years ago wrote a commentary right. on this verse and you know his 1000 pages of mental gymnastics perfectly explains why you know this is actually the way it is and not the way it seems I had actually done that I'd read those commentaries. I've gone into the weeds on everything I could but at the end of the day when you exhaust as much of that as you can and you're no longer willing to, to be generous with those people who are trying to explain away and say no, no, no I'm gonna be skeptical I'm gonna hold you to it I'm gonna make you explain this in a way that is not you know circular logic or some type of fallacy I'm gonna make you like if science is the best at the secular world world can bring. Why don't we hold you to that standard? If you're actually divine truth, that's undeniable. Why can't you hold up to that standard? And so I started to really apply the same rigor and and standards that I would to anything else in my life to my own faith. And, And the logic part fell apart quickly, but it was disentangling myself from the emotional part, rewriting my identity, reorienting myself, finding a new community. All those things were what took a very long time for me. And I found that to be a common experience.
2: Yeah, mine was more of a, I kind of think of it as a pecking away, kind of an eroding. There were key moments that I can point to and go, okay, this was an initiating moment or something that gave me more energy to keep going. I would say in my story of things, the very first initiating moment was when my mom died from cancer when I was in a very closed community and uh, I wasn't uh, encouraged encouraged to go to her funeral, I wasn't encouraged to go see her her last week of death and you know that in the long run made me wonder if this was a community that a was really Christian, was really living into the commandments and I would say this community wasn't You mean because you were already a humanist at that point? No, because no, I was a I was a whole hog Christian prayed on my knees, face down, hours a day, read the Bible. And they didn't want you to go see your mom? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm being nice. They were a cult. They were a cult here in town that I had been okay. involved in for 10 years. So they just didn't think that it was... Yeah. The verse they quoted to me was, "Let the, the leader quoted to me was, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, your mom is a part of those who are already dead because she's not a part of our community. So serve God. Let the dead bury the dead. And don't worry about it. Wow. So clearly not a healthy thing. Right. No. Yeah. And not a common experience. But Well, I'm sorry that you went through yeah, that. that. Thanks. I that, appreciate that, that. That
1: was the breaking point for you?
2: That was the beginning of the breaking point. Through the, the process then, I uh, actually devoted myself even more to this community. And they sent me to, that's when I went to OSU to major in Jewish studies because it was a community that sought to understand the Jewish roots of Christianity. And that's where things got really messy for me. The more that I looked into Judaism of the common era, the turn of the common era, the messier that came to be scholarship doesn't talk about one Judaism, but about Judaisms, uh, just because it's so many things going on. And then to say from that perspective of things, this one person who is not mentioned many times outside of the gospels this kind of historically questionable person is the one person who got it right out of hundreds of messiahs that came through and to go then to this particular messiah's teachings and go okay did he you know did he claim to be God? Depends on how you look at it. Sometimes he didn't, you know, and so all of this stuff started whittling away. By the end of that experience I had become a universalist, you know, kind of saying, okay God is, God exists, but God is a loving God and would never send anybody to hell, and that Jesus was pure man, good guy but not God, and you know, that just kind of slowly eroded over years. Uh, I played in an evangelical worship band after I left that community kind of hung out in that world, so I have positive Experiences of these different communities. But for me, the more I kind of kept digging and, and whittling away at these things, the more it, it just felt lacking. Mm-hmm. And the more it felt like. Wow. I was uh, Nathan used the one image of feeling unstable or dislodged. Or dislodged yeah, for me it felt. I don't know if, if y'all are old enough, but with the old TV screens when you turned them off, and it would go. Bleep, yep, yep. Yep. Okay. That's kind of what it felt like, right? It kind of it, everything kind of went down to this white solid light, which was me, and it was like, okay, what the heck can I do with this? And that's kind of when I started going into uh, atheism and humanism, and okay, again, defining myself by what I wasn't did not feel energizing at all but defining myself by what i was who i wanted to be how i wanted to live my life that's what drew me more into the humanism identity and that's kind of where i found new energy new community new ways to define what i was doing and why i was doing it and that's kind of how i got to there wow that's about the shortest I've done that story so
3: yeah well, Good job. We, we, we appreciate that I mean
0: I you know obviously there's some more details in there that people love to hear but yeah just remarkable the journeys. yeah
1: your mm-hmm. your journeys and, and they're similar yet at the same time different but you guys came ended up coming sort of to the same conclusion so mm-hmm. that's that's actually and like I said I
3: think that's very very common we did a panel discussion at one of our events last year on different faiths and their deconversion journey mm-hmm. and we were actually able to map them all in the same like set of stages. Sure. So it was Brother. crazy. It was like people who deconverted from Islam, Christianity, or like uh, Protestantism and Catholicism and, and etc. They all had these same stages of deconversion and I might be able to send it to you but I, I can't no, recall them then. all perfectly <laughs> off the top of my head so I don't want to butcher it. But it was incredible to, to see how common this type of a journey is. And I'm just so glad that you know now there are I think 235 local chapters of of humanist groups throughout the country mm-hmm. so most places if, if you look you can find a handful of people who have probably had a similar journey if that sounds like you so mm-hmm.
2: and we actually have 100 humanist chaplains throughout the country as well so you know we're at we're in about 50% of these communities mm-hmm. trying to figure out you know how to care for each other from this humanist foundation so
0: well uh, just on my behalf I appreciate you guys sharing some emotional I'm sure traumatizing mm-hmm. sounds like there's some trauma there mm-hmm. that you guys had
1: to deal with so thank you for sharing yeah. that thank you no. Thank you for coming on Mm -hmm. um, and just helping us understand this and try to understand your story and where you're coming from and other people who may be in the same situation. Um, Ben, Nathan, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to find out more about your organization or or just, you know, your, your faith in general. How can they do that?
3: HCCO.org. Stands for Humanist Community of Central Ohio. HCCO.org.
1: Yeah. If you want to get a hold of me
2: personally, uh, you can email me at Ben at HCCO.org.
3: And Nathan at HCCO.org. And have we set up the chaplaincy webpage? We do. Yep. So So if you'd like to get in touch with a chaplain or you'd like to reserve a humanist celebrant to help with a wedding or a naming ceremony or anything alike, we now have resources and specific web pages set aside to help you get that going.
1: Awesome. So, I know you guys have events, other like Mm -hmm. uh, on your Facebook page and Mm -hmm. and other stuff like that. So,
3: yep, you can find us on Meetup as well.
1: Second Saturday of every month
2: is our main meeting. Yeah
0: just to be clear at these events just because i've heard some of the rhetoric you guys don't do anything to children you don't (laughs) you don't you don't harm animals no or you don't you don't light things on fire you don't try to tell we may may light a candle on fire but but you're not telling teenagers to have sex every day all day no okay so these are more of a you know if you're looking for answers and you're you don't know where to turn and maybe you're questioning there's a safe harbor for you and you can come to one of these events absolutely so it's a Very safe space
2: for people. If you go to our, you guys don't seem to be
0: aggressive. The the
1: recordings of many of our talks. Okay. Yep. I was reading something online It almost seems Obviously not for you guys But for other humanists And atheists It's almost like being in a closet Like No seriously because yeah, we hear that all the time Because the, yeah. the people The negative reaction I can understand If Why would you want to share that With someone If someone's gonna You know Look down on you And well don't you You know well, Aren't you scared when you die And what about your mom And you know So Everybody I, has
3: their coming out story yeah, yeah
1: hopefully You know Just even whether you agree with it Or not or understand Understand. People should feel free to be able to be who they are mm-hmm. and express who they are without mm-hmm. condemnation or judgment or, or any of that. So, yeah. wholeheartedly heartedly agree. Thank yeah. you guys yeah. for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. If for those of you out there who are listening, thank you for joining us. And don't forget to check us out on our Facebook page at Facebook slash group slash other side podcast. Or you can always hit us up on Twitter at other side underscore POD. And uh, there's a bunch of photos and uh, you can submit questions. Or, uh, and we
0: got a new partnership, right?
1: Uh, we do have a new partnership with um, our friends at Columbus Alive Magazine. So, also check them out. And we have our last episode is also posted on there, uh, which is about food deserts and the impact of dollar stores. So, yeah. if you get a chance, please check it out. I think and it's pretty good for you,
0: Columbus Alive readers who are checking out the podcast for the first time. We have a lot of episodes. Yes, a lot Welcome. of a lot of emotional episodes. A lot yes. of Scott and I making fools
1: of each other. So, <laughs> please. And, we, and we talk about serious, informative stuff like this Yeah. so yeah so if you want more of this check us out hit us up but until then try to see things from the other side thanks